Welcome to the Microcast. This is a podcast where Adam and Josh talk about all things precision. In this first episode, Adam and I lay down the groundwork. We learn a little bit about each other's machine pasts. Adam tells me about an exciting new high-precision laser machine from, of all people, Willem and Macadel. And we both share some precision problems that we've conquered. This is our first go at this podcast thing, so I hope you can forgive any and all mistakes that we've made. So, a little about me. I've been doing this for 15 years. I'm a state journeyman in tool and die making, uh, but most of what I do is actually machining, so I just kind of refer to myself as a machinist more than a tool maker. Uh, I got into this after high school, a job shop my brother was working at. He got my foot in the door. And first things I started doing there were running pretty large engine lathes. And uh, it just kind of stuck from there. I kind of fell in love with it instantly. Uh, From there, I went on to get into more precision work. Uh, That's when I got exposed to grinding at a higher level, Uh, a lot of high precision jig boring and jig grinding and that's when I kind of learned about more and sip jig borers and that fascination has stuck with me to present day Uh, and that's also when I got into a lot of my die making experience Uh, my first die making was with pop can dies uh, which are quite precise quite large but they're a little cut and dry. Uh, not much has changed in the pop can die industry in the last 30 years. So um, after a few years of that, I got a job at my last job, which is Superb Industries. And uh, that's where we were doing carbide die making for high-speed stamping of electrical components. Uh, so a stamping die there might run 800 strokes a minute and it can produce up to the 30 parts per hit. So we had some dies running 24,000 parts a minute there. And that really opens your eyes to high volume manufacturing and, and everything that needs to be in place for that to happen. And I really cherish that experience because you, you learn about things outside of machining and grinding and tool making that are so much more important. Like, quality control for how you're making 24,000 parts a minute and maintaining quality. Um, Now, going on two and a half years, we have my wife and I, our own business called Demoth Tool and Design, and uh, we focus on hard milling and small components for the tool and die industry. Uh, We mainly build for one specific type of press, which is called a beeler. And that's a German press with a lot of interesting attributes. Uh, So instead of a big stamping die that moves up and down, it has a lot of smaller modules. And uh, you could have a lot more tools in a confined space, and you could do a lot more elaborate parts as a result of the way these things work. You can do more bending. You can do more elaborate bending. You're not you're not confined in motion to up and down you can you can move in three axes when you bend and uh so they're very popular in europe but you don't see them as much in the states 
so there aren't a lot of dye shops that work with them as a result in the states and uh, so that's been a, a good specialty line of work for me to get into and that's certainly something I recommend to any new entrepreneur is specialize uh, find find a, a segment of the industry you enjoy and then go a little deeper and find an underserved area of that segment and hone in on that and you'll you'll be busy so we've uh, we started that in 2017 and then April 12th 2019 I left superb and I've been full-time for a year since so uh, it's been a been a fun and interesting year and uh, rewarding that's uh pretty insane actually um i think I, I don't think i've heard the, your full story i think i've only heard snippets of this and that and, and definitely more of the more recent stuff like i knew that you were involved with pop cans or, or soda cans um but lots of questions and i don't even know if we'll have time to go into all of them but when you were working on the big stuff in your first job you said it was big engine lights did you ever think that you'd be ending up somewhere here or like what were your goals and aspirations back then uh so interestingly enough the first machine i actually really really wanted was a morisaki nvd 1500 dcg <laughs> which is currently in my garage and uh the reason i wanted that is at the time i i uh i thought well i can't afford a big shop but maybe i can buy uh a reasonably high-end machine and put it in a garage mm. and uh it uh it just took a while that's all um unfortunately they don't produce the machine anymore but i was able to get one from a university uh, university of california berkeley that only had 300 hours on it mm. um so i uh even when i was doing the big stuff i was fascinated with the small stuff mm. um the big stuff it's it's legitimately scary to work with sometimes uh, uh several several very bad incidents happened in my six years of doing that and so when i got into things that you could just put in the machine by hand i was <laughs> grateful you don't need a crane <laughs> to load any parts no no so um but yeah i, I just I remember watching a video probably circa 2004 about or five about the Mori mm -hmm. and uh, I thought boy that thing's pretty cool it'd be perfect for a garage shop and then uh, 2019 I was looking for another small machine and, and I thought oh, I wonder if any of those are still floating around and sure enough I was able to find one wow so it took you like 15 years to secure yeah. the deal <laughs> yeah so what a tease uh, I'm sure we'll talk about that guy uh, more in the future. That's a, it's got some really, really interesting uh, characteristics about that machine. Yes, it's uh, it's very atypical for Morisaki. Mm. Um, I could, could see that coming from a lot of other manufacturers, but uh, it was kind of an odd direction for them to head. Well, I, I did have another question about the Beela presses. One of the early Instagram posts I remember kind of obsessing over, like I'd probably watched the video that you posted at least 20 or 30 times was the, um, sheet metal to sort of, um, 
more or less a box. It was like a box that was folded and laser welded. And was that done on a Bela press? Yes. So that was what uh, their newest generation of press. That's called a... uh, uh, BM3000. So that's... uh, It's essentially a glorified angle plate or grid plate. And so so the original Beeler presses, and they still make them like this, there's a big central gear that drives all these small cam-operated pressing slides. And you can unbolt them and move them around, but you have to be able to get your power taken off of that gear. So you're, you're slightly limited into where exactly you could put these. I'm going to say once every eight inches. Um, so on these new ones, they decided, well, servos are getting pretty powerful, and they made the pressing modules servo-actuated. And the benefit there is you can put them wherever. The grid pattern on the, on the machine's frame is every 100 millimeters, but you can make a a subplate underneath to shift them around indefinitely and get them exactly where you need them. Uh, the, the downside to that is that system had over a dozen servo slides on them and each servo slide's about thirty to forty thousand dollars a piece and then it had probably I'm gonna say another dozen associated axes that were all dri- drived. So the control cabinet on it was a small fortune um and they're way way more flexible and you could redeploy them to do different things a lot more easily but in terms of machine cost and tool cost they could be immense um but we'll uh we'll throw a link to that on our supplement instagram so you can see what we're looking at but uh yeah that um you, that's exactly what you don't see a lot of in America currently, is that style of Beeler press. Uh, what you do see a lot of are these older, smaller Beelers, which are popular in spring forming and uh, making little clips and such. But I could see that changing because in terms of labor savings, uh, those presses can be pretty impactful. Hmm. So it's, there is like a, a slight parallel that I can draw with that story and cam-operated lathes. Um, it's probably it's probably not one for one, but in the watchmaking industry, uh, you had most of the small diameter turned components made on these Tornos cam lathe machines, which uh, I'm, I'm vaguely were, familiar. I remember seeing a Titan video where he toured uh, a company in Switzerland with some. That's right, yeah, um, and it's and it, they're fantastic. They're great machines. They're quite accurate, and they are really designed for mass production. You know, ten thousand plus pieces of, of one part per run, and they can you know make a million parts a year kind of thing. And that's um, that's their specialty. But uh, the, they don't make them anymore, obviously, and they replaced nearly all of the functionality with modern. Uh, modern CNC controlled lathes, which are more or less, it's, it's doing the exact same thing. You're just replacing all the um, electromechanical, oh, sorry, the mechanical drives with electromechanical drives. 
and uh, the same thing happened with a Tornos Swiss Nano, which is the kind of the pre- predecessor to the, um, I think it's the M7, Tornos M7. You could probably cut your setup time and your tooling cost by at least 60-70%. Um, and the whole Swiss lathe industry did that exact same thing, probably around the, the late 60s. They started saying, well, okay, these cam, cam machines aren't aren't going to be the future. And they started the process of, of uh, uh, modernizing. It's, it, it's actually fascinating because a lot of those um, cam machines are still used, like you said. They're, they're probably still making parts. You see that with uh, <clears throat> what's called four-side machines. Uh, there are some manufacturers that make a CNC style four slide but a four slide is essentially another type of machine where it can it can now bend in two axes very easily instead of one uh, <clears throat> it's not uncommon or not dissimilar to a Beeler uh, but what you're seeing is there's a lot of these older companies that have a few dozen of these old machines lying around because they're essentially scrap value at this point and they have all the accessories and so what they could do is if the job only needs a hundred thousand parts a year they could set a machine up and leave it in the corner and turn it on when they need it and let it sit for a couple weeks if they don't um so that that is kind of an interesting offshoot of that is uh there are some guys who embrace the old technology and how cheap it is and they still do well with it but I'm, I'm sure you see a lot of those cam-driven screw machines still churning out parts in a similar fashion. They don't switch jobs on them a lot. They just no. probably leave them set up and turn them on when they need it. Yeah, and that Titan video is a perfect example of that because, I mean, <laughs> most of these Swiss companies that make small micromechanical devices have the same sort of setup, but that video illustrates it perfectly because you have a whole floor of the exact same machine. And you're absolutely right. They'll just set up one machine for one job per year, even if it's a small quantity of 10,000, let's say it's still massive, but relatively speaking, that's nothing compared to the setup time it would take to change it over to another job. And um, I think you, the last time I checked, I could you could pick up an M Tornos uh, M7 for less than 2,000 Swiss franc. Yes, it would probably be a bit beaten up. Uh, but for 2,000 Swiss franc, I couldn't even ship it to Australia. Uh, so uh, you're right, it's pretty much scrap, but uh, in the right hands, it's you know golden. Well, my name is Josh Hacker, and I'm a fourth generation watchmaker. Uh, my father started his business in 1995 in Australia, or 1996, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, but he originally came from Europe, from Yugoslavia. So he was a immigrant, uh, more or less a refugee actually, because the civil war was happening in, in, in uh, Yugoslavia back at that time. And he came to Australia and set up his own watch repair business. And uh, since then, I've been uh, sort of working on and off with dad with different projects um, all throughout high school and as soon as I finished high school I started 
I guess, to more seriously focus in on what dad was doing. And in first year university, I helped dad start a watch manufacturing business. And um, that wasn't actually the start of the brand. And that's, I guess, a completely different tangent that we won't go into here. But uh, since then, that was 2015, really, I've been learning about machining and learning about precision. And I really picked probably one of the more difficult industries to learn in. Uh, the demands of watchmaking are pretty severe in terms of precision and in, um, I guess, uh, quality and consistency. And uh, I, I started really from scratch. I didn't really didn't even know what an end mill was in 2015 and didn't even know what a machine was. I thought quite naively that a watchmaking machine existed that you could put material in on one end and you can watch out on the other end um that's all cnc if you ask an engineer <laughs> yeah, that's right yeah <laughs> seeing some of the drawings that you can uh, stumble across yeah i think the assumption is not uncommon <laughs> um so yeah i guess i guess it took a little bit to reframe my my expectations and find a new perspective on what was possible and not possible with uh, CNC manufacturing and all the different facets of manufacturing and your milling and your turning, your wire EDM, your sinker EDM and so on and so on. And I'd say that's all, uh, I guess, a very strong undercurrent of where I am currently is that I'm constantly learning I'm constantly finding new things and talking about new things. And even though I've achieved some of the more difficult things to do with um, watchmaking, uh, I am still extremely green when it comes to precision manufacturing in different facets of, I guess, the broader scope of mechanical engineering. Um, and I guess that's kind of how I started talking to you because I wanted to find out more. I wanted to find out more about precision and I didn't really have anyone to talk to about precision in Australia even in my kind of engineering class or anything they weren't really concerned or interested about manufacturing um, so I, I just <laughs> stumbled upon Instagram and the Insta Machinist community and started talking about that stuff with all sorts of different people and um, since then I've started we i mean at at the company i work at nicholas hacker watchmaker we do a lot of uh, internal work but we also do contract manufacturing a small amount and um bizarrely the instant machinist community has sort of uh, helped me in that in that in that sphere as well so i've um able to be uh, i've i've uh, been able to capitalize on instagram to make money which is uh which is a feat i think outside of advertising on instagram so yeah that's a that's a very um roundabout story and roundabout backstory you'd mentioned kind of seeking out people on instagram for kind of precision machining advice if you had questions about specific applications to watch making is that a very gate-kept community? Uh, are there a lot of resources you can bounce ideas off of with within that industry? Or are you kind of on your own there? 
Yeah, pretty much on my own. Um, that's a that's a really interesting facet to the way the company started, which was that we obviously wanted to make a watch. And the first thing you do when you want to make something is you sort of figure out what other people are doing. And you say, well, okay, is anyone else doing what I'm doing? Or is anyone else... Did anyone make a YouTube video on it or a YouTube tutorial on how to make a watch? And nothing like that exists. And then you go one step further, which is, well, maybe there's some books on it. And there aren't any... Uh, modern books on industrial watch manufacture. Uh, there's a few kind of university level textbooks, but they're very theoretical. And then you go one step further beyond that, which is, well, let's ask someone who's made a watch before. And there's countless uh, experiences of you know, just awkwardness, real, real, true, in, like uh, industry awkwardness when you ask someone a question and you know instantly as soon as you ask it that they will never answer the question because it's um, it's a tightly guarded secret as to what you're asking about. So the way I learned is a combination of industrial, oh, sorry, corporate espionage and... Uh, <laughs> And uh, just figuring it out on yourself and making mistakes. So it's everything from going frame by frame in a in a like a watchmaking video where they show the industrial process to trying to copy that and realizing some things are completely unnecessary and you don't need to do them and some things are really like golden and you just pick up this one little tidbit of information and it helps you along the way of making a watch. That's interesting. Um my industry, I think, used to be very gatekept before I got into it. Uh, you go into some of these carbide shops, and they they used to have these sectioned-off rooms where they did this very elaborate type of grinding, and uh, you know certain people only would be allowed in there. But what they found out eventually is you know the turnover from shop to shop in this industry was high enough that there wasn't a lot of secrets getting kept and a lot of those walls came down but uh it's unfortunate you have to you don't have many resources you could turn to in watchmaking um i do see the same thing when you mentioned there aren't many books on the subject uh what books there are on die making are are very neat very uh general not a lot on carbide precision die making so it can be frustrating uh, but yeah, I found some good people to bounce ideas off of on Instagram as well, and that's been pretty useful. Uh, one of the other questions I had is: uh, Is there any formal training that somebody can go through for watchmaking or the CNC manufacturing of watch components? Uh, in America, we have our, our apprenticeship and journeyman's programs, which I think do a pretty good job of getting somebody up to speed. Is there anything like that in your industry or in Australia? Uh, nothing in Australia. Uh, uh, I mean, there are CNC manuf and, and manufacturing courses in Australia. But nothing to your level? No, nothing. I mean, yeah, nothing to either watchmaking or precision manufacturing. The tool and die industry was probably the closest thing that we had. And that was strongly driven by um, the uh, auto industry and so you had uh, GM you had Toyota 
And you also had Ford with manufacturing plants down in Victoria, which is kind of south of where I am, about 2000K south. Um, kind of south. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's quite south. <laughs> Australia is a big place. It's, it's, okay, it's not a 2000, it's probably 1200. Anyway, um, but that industry died out uh, in, in the early 2000s. And I think the last auto manufacturing shop died out or at least withdrew its presence in 2009 so yeah with with that industry dying all hope of precision manufacturing in australia and the education surrounding it died Uh, but specific to watchmaking there are a few courses that i know of that will guide you at least on a very surface level on this on the manufacturing side and one is run by the EPFL in Switzerland. Um, and that's a kind of like a, uh, it's, it's more or less you're, you're studying to become a mechanical engineer specializing in the industrialization of the watch manufacturing process. And that course, um, as uh, to what I understand is, very small and also quite targeted at Swiss people, Swiss citizens. Uh, so I couldn't, at least with my current, even even my current qualifications, I probably couldn't go over and study that. Uh, notwithstanding, I don't know either German or, or French, so I'd be fairly useless. Um, but the way it's done in Switzerland, and this is as much as I know, really, from what I've gathered and what, what I've talk to people about and seen is that you start off your um, sort of a manufacturing career just halfway through high school and you do uh, four days at the place of work so at a watch company or some sort of precision manufacturing company and a single day at school and you do that for about two years and you graduate with a um, like a basic polytechnician de- uh, degree. And that's what they sort of start off with. And then from that point, you specialize in one of the facets of watchmaking. So I know people uh, that have specialized in small diameter bar turning on those uh, Swiss lathes their whole life. So they, they've spent 30 to 40 years just focusing on how to perfect small diameter turning. And um, that's the kind of the bane behind watchmaking there's no institution that can really teach you that because no institution is going to teach you for 40 years they're only going to teach you the basics and going to send you off now i'd imagine there's a similar sort of case with um with tool and die because you'd probably and you'll correct me on this but you'll probably learn the basics and maybe you'll learn some stuff about carbide dies but if you ever wanted to make one of those ceramic dies that you know i saw on your instagram as well I'd struggle to think that there'd be many places that would teach you that. Correct. Um, most dye education is very, very, very basic. Um, and it has more to do with the theory behind dye design, what your clearance values should be, how much spring pressure in this mm-hmm. application you should use, stuff like that. Uh, the actual fabrication of dye components isn't really covered in... at least the education I got, that was all done through hands-on experience. A lot of mistakes, I'd imagine. (laughs) Yes. 
I'm happy I waited so long to start my own business. I think I got a lot of my mistakes out of my system on other people's yeah. uh, components. Uh, success is never a good teacher, and it always um, it always helps when someone else is paying for your non-successful moments. Absolutely. Yeah, I guess that's one thing I wish I I sort of had. Um, the first machine I ever ran was a Citizen R04, which is a four millimeter maximum diameter Swiss lathe. And the second machine I ever ran was the Kern Pyramid Nano that we have. And uh, yeah, I, I, I'd be I'd be lying if I didn't make any if I said that I didn't make any mistakes. <laughs> Put it that way. Um, well, to be fair, I didn't really start having costly mistakes until I gained some confidence. I think you could have put me on a pretty elaborate piece of machinery when I was still pretty new at all this. And uh, I was so scared that I I was very, very aware of everything I did. Where once you get a few years under your belt, you start moving a little quicker. And that's that's when you let your guard down and you can you can kind of make some mistakes but uh, uh, moving quick's kind of a thing in the past now I, <laughs> I don't get uh, in too big of a hurry these days I have a morbid fascination with crash stories Oof. I think uh, that's <laughs> like that could be a recurring segment for the next 100 years in every single podcast I listen to and I'd still listen <laughs> I don't know. That's <laughs> my hands are getting clammy thinking about some of them. But <laughs> my my background in with big diameter turning, um, I saw some very very scary ones where several ton work pieces kind of like lurch out of the chuck at people, and it's like, Ugh. Um, didn't care for that at all. Uh, <laughs> but you know, mill crashes they're they're pretty exciting as well. Seems uh, seems like things move pretty quick downwards in mills. So, um, just none of them none of them were fun to be around or be part of. The worst I ever saw, and thank goodness this wasn't me, but uh, a guy had a very large boring bar hanging out of a lathe. It was an Akuma Cadet, and uh, he was finished turning these bronze bushings, and he turned through the bushing and clipped the jaw, but he was putting this relief groove in it. It's kind of like a thread almost. And he hit the jaw so hard it cracked the casting and ripped the turret off. And the sound it made, I was probably 100 feet away with two walls between us, and I heard it in perfect clarity. Uh, And, you know, it just reminds you how dangerous some of this stuff can be. So he cracked the casting of the turret. Is that right? Uh, it cracked is a box way, and it cracked where one of the keeper plates holds it to the way. No. So it ripped ripped the x axis down off the uh, box way it rides on, and that was pretty uh, pretty bad. It, it ruined the machine. It was it was scrapped out. Now it was, it was like a thirty year old machine at that point, and they just kind of kept it around for <laughs> you know odds odds and ends, and it was. A basic two-axis lathe, but uh, yeah, it was it was done. Oh, I have um, 
a set, well, no longer, but when I started doing all of this, I had a set of recurring nightmares, um, more or less the exact same crash playing over in my head um, and usually bites me somewhere in the middle of the night if I've worked late hours or something like that. And it's the whole Z-axis of my milling machine uh, uncontrollably plunging down. And no matter how many times you hit the E-stop, and oh, and it just keeps going. It just keeps going. <laughs> and um, I, I remember, like, almost, <laughs> almost um, intentionally going to bed, talking myself out of that crazy situation, saying, "I'm not going to dream that tonight. I'm not going to dream that tonight." And uh, you're absolutely right. As soon as you get any confidence, um, that's when <laughs> that's when the crashes happen. Uh, so I've sort of held on to that dream in this like love-hate relationship to keep me grounded enough not to uh, gain too much uh, confidence and crash the bloody thing. Yeah, luckily, knock on wood, it's been a long time since I've had a, a collision. Hmm. Um, just most of the tooling I work with is so small. Yeah. If, uh, if I have a programming mishap, it just snaps the tool off. Mm-hmm. And I could live with that. Um, I don't, especially with a ceramic bearing spindle, want to bury a tool holder and call it into a piece of hardened tool steel. No. Um, yeah. But uh, interesting, I mean, this is another offshoot. The failure mode of spindles is something I read into just a little bit. And um, it seems that on, on that, on the very... Um, uh, on the very outset of, of reading on this topic, c- ceramic bearing spindles tend to just break. Whereas if you have a standard high-speed bearing spindle, um, you can actually crash your spindle and have it still run but fail later down the track because of that crash uh, due to an indentation yeah, in the race. Know. Yeah, that's right. Exactly right. Um, so I don't know what's preferable, I mean, I'd love, uh, I'd love to know instantly if my if the crash that I did. Thankfully, I haven't really crashed anything too severely, but the, I'd love to know if the crash that I did ruined the, the bearings instantly, rather than finding out, you know, half a month later or something like that. Yeah, um, I don't know that there is a preference. <laughs> it's going to be bad. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, this is the nice thing about manual surface grinding you don't have any of these concerns uh. okay so this next segment is the new machine segment uh this is something josh and i both really seem to enjoy talking about is new interesting machinery in the precision industry uh, not necessarily just CNC mills and lathes, but the more odd stuff. And uh, we both spend a lot of time talking about this stuff and make, making. Uh, eh. We both spend a lot of time talking about this stuff and passing videos around. And I thought this might be something other people find interesting. So uh, here we go. Today's machine is the Willman Macadel. Did I say that right? That yeah, I think I think so. One 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 LMC. So this is a, an unusual machine for an unusual company. So Willem and Macadell is known for their bar-fed mill turns, 
for making these very intricate medical and watch components. But this is their entry into the precision laser market. Uh, so this would be essentially a three-axis gantry, but then they have this very unique laser head on it made by uh, Avonisys. And so the laser, I think, is probably what is the interesting technology here. It's a water jet laser. So the laser is being guided through a high-pressure nozzle of water. And what that does is it gives you a very, very straight curve. It gives you no heat-affected zone, mm -hmm. which is important to guys doing uh, high-carbon steels that are hoping to heat treat, like knife makers or people in my line of work. And uh, it gives you really fine surface finishes. And so I think this is going to be competitive with wire EDM and a lot of non-ultra-precision applications. Uh, looking at their website, it seems like this is good for 1 to 2 micron tolerances, which I think most people would say is really good. Um, but I think EDM still will edge it out a little bit. Uh, and I haven't seen a very thick part. Who's to say how this will do on a 75 millimeter tall block? But uh, it, it looks pretty interesting. And uh, it does non-conductive materials, which that's usually where EDM bows out. Um, so I was really fascinated by this. Uh, it, uh, there's a couple other people in this market, but, uh, the Willman, it seems like a nice combination of table size and machine size. And, um, so I'm, I'm excited to see where this technology goes. I know it could have big impacts for the work I do. And I suspect that being Willman, this has some applications in the watch industry. Yeah, I mean, on on the outset, you you'd think that's what they created the machine for. Willamin is really strong in the watch industry, and a lot of the product development follows the watch industry um, technology curve and what's like what's on the cutting edge. But I'm yet to see parts of it. In fact, I'm not 100% sure <laughs> um, if it exists, like you mentioned. Uh, probably. I'm pretty good at Googling things, and I can't yeah. find a photo of it. Uh, all I see is a CAD rendering. So we might be a little early on this one for the New Machine podcast. but uh, Which I think is actually the definition of, of how um, yeah. interested we are in this sort of stuff. Because uh, I, <laughs> I think... Um, Often when you talk to companies about their new machines, you can often break the company on an admin level. Um, you can sort of say, hey, I'm really interested in this XYZ thing. And uh, and I, I, I think that's what I encountered because I, I am legitimately looking at some kind of high-precision blanking solution mm. uh, for some of the prototype stamping stuff I do. Right now, that all gets wire EDM'd, but this could absolutely do it quicker i suspect not cheaper but i thought it's worth looking at and uh i got the impression the american williman reps were unaware of it or didn't know anything about it if they did know it existed um so yeah it's very very new i think but uh um well i had a couple of questions actually just as you were speaking sure. Um, you mentioned that it, it had significant impact on the applications that you're currently looking at 
or that you're currently serving in the in the tool and die and press industry that's to clarify that's specifically for the end product making the the final product as a prototype yeah so a lot of the electrical connectors in your vehicle they get prototyped somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 or a thousand and they'll get put through all kinds of new ul style testing uh, before they go in your vehicle or sometimes they'll use that same prototype capacity to do a limited run at the early stages of startup if the regular tooling isn't available yet mm. uh, so I don't know. When you make like 5,000 prototypes, you start to wonder like, are these <laughs> prototypes or are, are these going in production vehicles? Um, and uh, so that's why I'd never buy a first year vehicle. Uh. Uh, so uh, I'll post a supplemental picture, but it's essentially an electrical connector laid flat mm. and we'll stack 20 to 30 sheets of whatever the base material is usually some kind of beryllium copper and we'll wire him the profile of what would otherwise be our stamp strip mm. um to give you an idea the last one i did the shim pack was about an inch thick and it took 30 hours to run on the <sighs> wire edm wow so there's a couple problems there I don't. Let's say that the laser and EDM still take the same amount of time per part to cut. Uh, it's very, very difficult to iterate quickly when you have that kind of chunk of time cutting. Um, so you know, you, if you're lucky, it all lands on a weekend, mm -hmm. scheduling-wise. Uh, but sometimes you need parts in the middle of the week, and it, it really is a, a disruptive thing for the EDM shop. And uh, so to be able to have a one-piece workflow and get your blank from, make a stamp, see what you need to adjust, uh, would be really, really profound. Uh, so a lot of times on these, they'll have like a coin tip. So we're, we're putting a very light chamfer on the end of a light and depth, but also angle. It might be like a 10 degree. Mm -hmm. But we have to maintain a constant length on these. Uh, they have pretty tight length tolerances on insertion of the prongs mm. so when you coin those tips this isn't subtractive mm. and it's not additive it's <laughs> it's displacing metal so when you coin the tips it gets longer now in when i design this stuff i look at the displacement of those chamfers and you you account for that and most of the time i can get it pretty darn close uh probably within 30 microns mm -hmm. uh, but i've had 25 micron tolerances on the lengths before so wow you need to be able to go back and make your blank a little bit longer or a little bit shorter quickly uh, and so i think it'd be really useful for actually preparing a blank but also i think cutting some of the rudimentary tooling uh, certainly wouldn't be a part I would put in a die, but sometimes for prototype work, I think something that was plus or minus five microns would be fine, and this machine seems like it would have no problem cutting that. Mm. Um, and from a speed element, if I had a sheet of hardened A2 and I can cut 
elaborate form profiles out of that sheet very quickly, I think that would be a, a, a benefit. Yeah, the, the one thing that I'm not sure about because I just don't know enough about lasers in general uh, is the thickness of uh, the parts that you can actually make on, on lasers. And the, the, the only experience that I did have with lasers was for a watchmaking application to cut the gears out. And um, that's always a tricky sort of problem to solve and how to cut a gear. And I chatted with the people at Microlution, which is a company that's owned by GF, and they're yes. fairly well established in the laser industry, and um, or at least as established. But they got started as a milling company, which I always find interesting. Yeah, they made a up until recently they were a milling company, right? That's right. They made a frame, a uh, kinematic structure for milling, and they also had an application. From what I understand, this is all kind of second-hand knowledge, but they made they had an application to use a laser, and they attached a laser to their milling milling frame and they realized that they had a really really stable platform for a laser machine and uh, they quickly put a two-axis trunnion and then an integrated five-axis um, machine came from that and so they did five-axis machining of uh, of fairly complex geometry but the the machine i was looking at was very standard three-axis it's extremely similar to this willamette actually um but the maximum thickness you could cut, and this was a different laser technology. It wasn't a water jet laser, as, as you mentioned in this one. But the maximum thickness was about half a millimeter. And so um, you could only stack one sheet down at a time, and you could either glue it or vacuum it down. Um, and if you wanted to go thicker, you'd have to have a very complex... Uh, it's more or less a five-axis head to angle the laser beam so it would ablate the material uh, from a different orientation the deeper it went. I see. So they're they're tilting the beam and kind of walking the wall down around the part? That's right, yeah. Anything beyond <clears throat> 0.5 millimeters. And I think even you'd still need the five-axis head or the tilting head uh, to to maintain tighter tolerances in something like 5 micron um, on, on form accuracy. So, I mean, again, I'm no expert in laser machining, but um, for the watchmaking industry, I think it's quite novel. But for your application, it actually sounds like the perfect sort of um, process because it's just so it would be so much quicker than wiring again. Uh, yeah, especially on the, the, the prototyping stage. Um Time will tell on the tooling. It, it may not be a good match, but mm. uh, one of the non-tool and die customers I have is a knife making company, and uh, they water jet their blanks and then send them to me, and I do some work on them. Uh, and you know, in the future, I, I would like to maybe get to the point where I'm prepping the material, mm. or even using that laser to produce complete parts. Mm. Some of the internal parts I make. Uh, have tight tolerances but don't necessarily need to be milled they're essentially two two and a half dimensional parts mm. and uh not water jet wouldn't do a good enough job but i think something like this would do a great job at them uh so i'm looking at Ivanasis's website and it seems like of the demo parts they have they're stopping around 25 millimeters mm. so 
I, I there's definitely a thickness component, and uh, but mm, I, it, it's it's thicker than than that GF uh, solutions machine you're talking about. Mm. Uh, so yeah, go to Avonasis or Google that or Google Williman one 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 LMC to see some of the the interesting things they're cutting with it. Um, essentially like a zero kerf cut where they're taking the waste and putting it back in the uh the just cut hole and uh very 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 tight kerf and uh tight fit which is pretty impressive just as a um <laughs> as a description of how new this machine truly is if you search up willamin 111 lmc in google as i just did right now i get on in, a, in an australian um server i get two results uh two website links and one's for a linkedin uh <laughs> for avonesis and the other one's like a news press release that was released uh in february this year so <laughs> you're right on the bleeding edge of, of this technology adam <laughs> well i just saw that they uh had revamped their website and i was kind of clicking through and uh i had a i have a decent knowledge of what each one of their levels of machines are and i didn't know mm. they had a 100 series yeah <laughs> so i just kind of stumbled backwards into it um but yeah i had looked at that uh that microlutions machine you'd spoke out mm. spoke about and uh quickly determined at, at the half millimeter it was uh capable of cutting uh some of the prototypes i do are 0. 0.7 0. 0.8 millimeter so uh, it's it's just a little too delicate for the work I do, but uh, that's kind of what kind of got my sights on ultra-precision laser cutting. Another segment that we'd like to launch is called My Precision Problem, and it's where Adam and I talk about a precision-related problem that we've both had uh, during the week or during the month or maybe even it's long-standing, and how we've solved it. Uh, a lot of the time we hear about these problems that, you know, maybe appear on Instagram and they sort of kind of disappear into the ether of the internet. We never find out how they were solved. Um, and so this is this is a really uh, niche, I guess, part of, of the manufacturing process uh, where my problem stems from. It's in the making of precision fixtures and for the last uh, two or three months I've been designing and making fixtures for this next caliber that we're making and some of them are iterations on a previous design that we have uh, and for some context these are fixtures to hold the flat brass or titanium or timascus components that uh, are found in the movement the internal components of a watch and that they've riddled with tight tolerances and really quite difficult to make uh, but I guess my problem is it's been solved already which is great <laughs> I don't need um I don't need too much more input on it but the way it was solved was just from pure uh thinking ahead I guess um, some some sort of creative design thinking that I actually solved the problem before I'd even made it and to describe it um, simply I use a Eroa zero point system which all of my fixtures locate on and 
every three or four months, depending on the use of, of the machine, I recalibrate the center position of the Aroa zero point system. It's, um, it's not permanently fixed to the table. You can remove it and um, you can kind of shimmy this it around. This would be the one you have up on a riser? That's right, yeah. I've got a bunch of pictures and okay. it's, 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 it's where I do all the three axis work. It's actually a little bit more stable and you don't get any motor noise from the, from the trunnion. Um, so anything that requires, you know, really fine surface finishes, I tend to put onto this three-axis Aroa palette, uh, or sorry, rather Aroa centering system. And uh, I made a fixture that only does one job, which is to hold the the plate that I make. The it's called a three-quarter bridge. In its very last um, operation, there's about four or five operations that I need to due to this part and this is the last operation. So I didn't really make it until I needed it. And I made it about two weeks before I needed to look into recalibrating the center point of this Aroa system. And um, more or less what happened was that I realized that the X and Y axes of this Aroa centering system were actually skewed by about, um, oh, I would say maybe 0.1 degree or something like that so not inconsequential and that was probably because I was you know plowing on it a little bit too much or when you tighten it you can actually shift it a little bit and the problem arose that when I recentered this uh, this centering system just last week or two weeks ago obviously the fixture that I'd made on this uh, offset of 0.1 degree is now uh, kind of lost. I can't actually regain that, and I didn't have any locating geometry to uh, re-clock that fixture. And mm. that became a real big issue because <laughs> the path that I put on um, and did the final features on came out crooked, and I was kind of racking my brain and said, oh, well, how did this happen? Like, you know, maybe I should phone up Kern service support and figure out why my x-axis is off by 0.1 degree. You know, that's it's not a great, great, great problem to have. Soon I realized that it was actually all about the skew and smartly in designing the fixture many months beforehand, I left about um, 20 millimeters of thickness in the brass that uh, I insert the dowel pins into and create all the locating geometry. I'd left about 20 millimeters or 30 millimeters of thickness that I could mill down into. So it was no loss of the fixture. I had the program already set up and it, it really just came down to putting the fixture into the machine on this new centered XY plane and uh, milling the, uh, the, the existing brass section of the fixture down about 10 millimeters and then milling the new geometry in on this new XY plane. And uh, smartly this time as well, I <laughs> made a little flat that I could indicate off of for the next time and a hole down in the middle that I can probe the center location. So I've got the center and the flat. So yeah, that was my problem that um, I, I sort of fixed. Seems like a pretty uh, reasonable approach. So in producing these calibers, is this something that the fixture can relocate if it has to go back in the machine or is this a one clamp operation if it comes out it's either good or bad as in the fixture or the part the part 
the part, right? Um, yeah, it's tricky. It's, it's, it depends really what you're doing to it. Uh, there's some features that you have to really get down and located in the same clamping. You can't put them, you can't take them out of the, the fixture and put them back in and sort of tinker with. That's uh, usually the, the, the location tolerance um, the, or the true position tolerance of bores. That's really something that's difficult to re-clock in. But this fixture was actually uh, for a pure, purely decorative operation. Um, but the problem with decorative operations is that you can't often in, in this industry, you can't measure how good something looks. It's, mm. it's purely aesthetic. And so even small variances, um, I mean, your eye is actually a very well calibrated measuring device. Um, even small inconsistencies can, can really rear their head and uh, cause big problems. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting note you make there about visuals being a, a hard thing to to put a quality mark on. Um, mm. How how's that handled as Nicholas Hacko watch grows? Is is that just going to be one person at the end of the line that eyeballs everything, or how do you teach a new operator what the standard is? I guess. Yeah, teaching a new person is is the most difficult part. Uh, there there's always certain milestones that the part has to reach in terms of dimensional QC, but also an aesthetic QC. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and funnily enough, a lot of the machining processes, uh, they, they may seem really complicated and like not necessary, but they are absolutely necessary because they sometimes can impact the aesthetic um, qualities of a part later down the line so the way you fixture something or hold something can you know warp something by 20 microns or something like that which might be fine in the tolerance that you're holding on the part but since the part needs to be dead flat to be polished dead flat or lapped dead flat to get a mirror it would be unacceptable so i guess to answer your question it, it comes from experience but these milestones are in place uh from from a manufacturing design standpoint, the way the fixtures are made and the way the process is designed uh, sort of caters towards this highly finished end product. That's all pretty interesting about all you have to do to maintain the, the aesthetic you want. Um, certainly not something we deal with in the tool and die industry. We like nice looking parts, but you know we have a limit. <laughs> um. What about your precision problem? Okay, so if you follow me on Instagram, you see probably the last few months I've been doing a lot of these tooling builds where it might be an assembly or it might just be a lot of parts that don't necessarily go together, but they all have one thing in common, and that's either a slot or the male version, some kind of boss keyway that I'm grinding. Uh, standard tolerance on position of these slot walls is plus or minus five microns some go a little tighter and it'll be a unilateral five microns total tolerance and uh, this would be from uh, a given datum and then the the width of that slot would probably generally be plus or minus five microns but I've, I've had some go a little tighter as well to total five microns um, 
And so how I currently check them is I'll measure that slot wall to the datum via gauge blocks and indicators. And that's actually a really good way to do it because in the process of indicating on the granite, I can check for taper in the wall, I can check for wheel breakdown in the corner, and I get a very good sense of how straight that wall is and if a key, which is dead on nominal size, goes in, how, how nicely it'll go in. Uh, and a lot of people are listening probably thinking, well, I mean, it's a key slot. Why are you? Um, <laughs> I use the term key loosely. Um, this isn't like always a locating key. Um, sometimes it's it's a sliding element or sometimes it's a punching element and these are cutting surfaces. Uh, so a slot and a key is just the easiest way for me to describe it. Um, so it's a guiding feature for linear motion or rotary motion. Yeah, more often than not. Um, uh, and sometimes it's just that is all it is is just a really precise keyway. Um, but uh, in a s- soft steel shaft with a soft key, if you have a little taper in your wall, uh, chances are the millwright's gonna get that key to go in. Uh, but when everything's hardened tool steel at sixty to sixty-two Rockwell. If there's an interference, it becomes very difficult at the assembly level. And tool and die making, you're kind of judged by how nicely your assembly goes together. Uh, When somebody takes all my parts, they come out of the bag, and they just click right in, and there's no problems, that tells them what they need to know. Um, So I, I really, really, really try to make sure fits and chamfers, which chamfers have a huge impact on the way things fit, uh, are, are always where they need to be. Um, so you might notice on a print that uh, there will be a title block note where all corners must have a uh, a 0.2 millimeter sharp corner radius maximum. And you might notice the corresponding part has a chamfer of 0.1 millimeter. And yeah, that's a design problem, but as a toolmaker, it's your job to make sure those two parts go together and to make that corresponding sharp corner tight enough so that it will. Um, so by indicating these these slot ledges or corresponding boss ledges with surface plate and indicator, I get a very good sense of where everything's at. Uh, the problem is, one of these tool packages will have anywhere from 20 to 30 unique parts. Some of them might be doubles, some might be mirrors. So I'll share like a, a setup of an indicator. But some of these parts can have five or six of these key style features on them. And so the amount of gauge block stacks I build up in a day is, you know, dozens, several dozens. And, uh, even with multiple indicators and stands, you're just constantly in setup mode on your metrology. And um, so I'm, I'm trying to work through how I wanted to speed that up. And so for the, the protruding keyways or bosses, for for measuring the, the actual width, I bought a disc micrometer, Mitutoyo Digital one. And I, I think that's going to be really good for just kind of getting a quick idea where I'm at. I'll still have to have a way of getting the datum to uh, ledge measurement. 
And um, so I've been racking my brain on that. And then for the male or the female keyway portions, I need a way to measure that width. And I, I played with a few ideas. I found a, it's called a caliper micrometer from Mitutoyo. And um, it's a micrometer, but it has these male protruding pens. I thought, oh, that might be interesting. I asked around. Apparently, they have no sense of feel. Um, there's enough give in the system upon making contact. You could actually overdrive them quite easily. Um, it's very, very, very hard to, to feel comfortable measuring with them. And so I kind of ruled that out. And I have the answer in my toolbox, and that's a shallow diameter gauge. Um, but the problem is that's one more thing to set up. No two of these slots are the same generally. So now trading gauge block stacks for setting this thing up. And so what I want is some kind of direct reading device where it's like a, a indicating micrometer from Etalon where I can grab it and take a quick measurement of how wide this slot is and be plus or minus two microns with accuracy. Um, and that doesn't currently exist. And so, you know, my mind starts ramping up how I can design all this. And uh, <laughs> it occurred to me, um, if I simply upgrade my digital readout and get a probe, I could probably probe location and width of all these features right on my grinder. And uh, a good example of this would be your friend Killian's uh, F1 project. Um, he has that Heidenhain uh, positive digital readout and probing system on it. And uh, I, I think something like that I've never seen that done on a grinder, but I also can't think of a reason why it wouldn't work. And so that's kind of the direction I'm leading right now. Unfortunately, that's a big investment. Um, I'd probably, <laughs> the, the digital readout would honestly probably cost more than I paid for the grinder. Um, so, <laughs> but I, in my head, that's actually going to be a pretty quick way to measure it. And I'm measuring without removing the part from the magnet. Uh, so I feel like uh, chances of getting something under the part or uh, some kind of error where I don't have the part all the way up against the, the magnet's rib go way down. Um, so I, I'm kind of excited to explore that more. I know technically these were supposed to be baked in solutions, but uh, um, you know, I in the interim, I did solve it and I bought the disc mic and um, and a lot of people might be asking, well, why don't you just use, uh, adjustable parallels where, and put that in your key and then measure over that with your disc mic. And that, that does work to an extent, but like I said, you don't get a true idea of just what exactly the size is. You get an idea of what the size of a thing that can go in there is, um, and I've I've put things together that were measured that way, and I've put things together that were measured via gauge blocks and indicators. And the higher level of metrology, the nicer things go together in my experience. Brings up a good point, which is the difference between the, uh, the contact measurement with, with insertion and 
your uh, numerical measurements, right? And, I, and I've faced that quite recently as well when measuring small diameter bores. So bores that are under probably one and a half millimeters. And they're usually quite shallow. So the, the thickness, the, the, the walls of the bore are anywhere between a millimeter to 0.3 millimeters. And it's very, very difficult to actually get a accurate measurement of what that bore size truly is. Um, and a plug gauge works fantastically, but all it tells you is the fit. Uh, at one point, if you have a really nice set of plug gauges that are in two micron increments or something like that, at one point, you'll find that your plug gauge will no longer fit, but that's not actually the true size of that hole because obviously a one millimeter plug gauge will not go into a one millimeter hole. Uh, you might be two microns or three microns out either way. Um, and so that comes down to, I guess the way I solved that problem for me was I looked at the final use case of that bore. Um, and I, I in, in that perspective, I have a strong liberty because I designed the part as well. Whereas I, I feel like you're um, manufacturing off a print. Um, and it was just for a press fit for a bearing. So you take the bearing and see if it presses in. If it doesn't press in, then you make the hole a little bit larger and so on and so on until you find a sweet spot. And then you find the pin that doesn't fit into that bore and you manufacture to that pin. Um, this, I guess, is all very rudimentary and simple when you look back on it. But sometimes... From my perspective, it's it's nearly impossible to find a solution until you just do it and, and try to figure, figure it out for yourself, I guess. Yeah, and a lot of people who kind of get into our level of like machine building, at first they're a little annoyed with the amount of grinding and inspection we do, and they don't quite get it. You hear, oh, it's it's just a key or you know it's a dowel hole. What's the? But you have to understand. The guys doing the design on this, and I used to be one, are probably churning out 3,000 to 5,000 prints a year. Oh, wow. So. <laughs> That's insane. The opportunity for mismatched intolerance is very, very high. And so one of the things we can do to combat it is to make the parts as close to nominal as possible. And on top of that, to... to take advantage uh make locations close to nominal but to also take advantage of material conditions and so make that slot mm. as wide as we can or make that uh locating key as narrow as we can mm. um keeping everything within their print but it's not at all uncommon to have things be wrong just due to design and you get to make something over because uh it wasn't tolerance correctly mm. Mm. um and so you learn to combat it, but uh, I do not criticize any engineering mistakes because, especially on like some of these machine designs, um, just the sheer volume of components they have to they have to create on a weekly basis, um, it uh, it's very very doable for an error to prop up. Thank you for listening. That was the first episode of the Microcast with Josh Hacko and Adam DeMuth. 
Please follow us on Instagram for more updates. I'm sure we'll be doing a second episode, uh, especially if you guys want it. If not, Adam and I will have plenty of machine stuff to talk about, so we'll still release them. Uh, our Instagram handles are Nicholas Hacko Watch and Adam the Machinist. So, hope to hear from you guys soon. See you. Bye. Thank you.